Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. We hope that it will encourage you as you seek to follow God and grow in your faith. If you would like to know more about our church, you can check us out at www.ritmangrace.org or feel free to email us at ritmangbc at aol.com. But for right now, let's get into today's message. Well, it's great to see you all. Hope you're all having a great weekend. My name is Clark. If we've never met before, I'd love to meet you and I'd love to meet your family after service. If you want to stick around and hang out in the lobby, if we have met, love to just catch up with you and see what's been going on in your world and how I could be praying for you. Uh, We have been in a study in the Ten Commandments, in case you haven't noticed, and uh, we're going to be concluding that sermon series today. So we made it. Right? We made it to the end of the Ten Commandments. Uh, we're looking at the Tenth Commandment today. We have spent the last uh, ten weeks in this study looking at the Ten Commandments. We've been exploring the question, what does God mean to say to us? What is God trying to tell us about His character and His will for us in these commandments? By the way, if you missed any of these past week messages uh, we've been in this series for a while. We started at the end of the month of May, and now we're concluding it. Uh, but uh, you can catch all these past week messages on our website at ritmangrace.org. Uh, we'd love to give access to you and serve you in that way. Uh, but as we began this series, we acknowledged something together. Um, at least I hope that we acknowledge something together, that God gives these Ten Commandments after He liberated His people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt. He brought them out of their slavery, and so he liberated them. And then what we said is that he gave them these commandments. And we observed that these are not just rules that we follow so that God would be happy with us, but rather these are rules for a life of liberated people. And this is what it looks like to live out of that freedom that God has given us in his grace. So today, like I said, we come to the 10th commandment which might be the most interesting commandment of them all. Because the reason I say that is the other nine speak very clearly to observable sins. And as we look at the other nine commandments, we also acknowledge that they speak uh, to more than that. They're much broader than we see on the surface. But they start with things that are very clear, very observable, things like stealing, things like lying, adultery, things that are obvious and can be seen. But now in the 10th commandment, we come to this commandment about coveting, something that is very interior, is something that's very internal. And so the question that I think we need to ask ourselves this morning, when we think about coveting and, and the sin of coveting, what is the difference between a healthy desire and coveting? Because on one level, we all are moved by desire, right? If we didn't have any desire, in other words, if we didn't want anything, then we would never do anything. So desires animates our lives when it comes to material possessions. It's not wrong to want a different car. It's not wrong. And for me, I'd like to have a a new guitar. But what's the difference between wanting something in a healthy and God-honoring way in coveting, coveting the sinful tendency that's spoken of in the Tenth Commandment. That's the question that I believe the Ten Commandment puts before us here today as we look at it together. So here's how I want to approach this conversation this morning. I want to talk first about a story of coveting, 
And then secondly, I want us to look at a survey of coveting, and then I want to close our time together by looking at the solution to coveting. So a story of coveting, a survey of coveting, and the solution to coveting. So since that's where we're going to go this morning, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to one of the most famous biblical stories of coveting. We find it in the book of 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings chapter 21, if you don't have a Bible, we're going to have the words up on the screen for you. But if you want to turn there, that's going to be found in the Old Testament as well. 1 Kings chapter 21, starting in verse 1, it says this. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. So that's just the guy's name and where he lives, by the way. It continues, it says, the vineyard, oh, excuse me, the vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. Okay, so here's what's going on here on the surface. There's just a simple property transaction. King Ahab, there's this vineyard that's bordering his property. So what does he say? He says, hey, can I buy this from you? I'll either give you money or I'll give you a different vineyard. But I'd like to have that one because it borders my property. So I'd like to own it. Naboth's response is, I'm not going to give you the inheritance of my ancestors. In other words, this isn't just a piece of property to me. This has been in the family for a long time. There's a heritage, there's a history behind this property. So what you may not understand about property law in the Old Testament is this. When God brought his people into the promised land, he was very clear to them that as he assigned each tribe and each clan property, that property was to stay in the family perpetually. What he was doing in this was God was guaranteeing that everyone in a very agrarian society would have the means to support themselves. That each family would own a parcel of property and that would provide for their needs. So, for example, to flesh this out a little bit, in the book of Leviticus, we actually read this. God says in verse 23 of chapter 25, Leviticus, The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine, and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. And then he goes on to give them the parameters of this. In verse 25, If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, right? so that could happen, you could have a bad year, and you could sell off your property to make ends meet. He goes on, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. If, however, there is no one to redeem it for them, but later on they prosper and acquire sufficient means to redeem it themselves, they are to determine the value for the years since they sold it and refund the balance to the one to whom they sold it. They can then go back to their own property. So land could be bought and sold for a short-term basis, but it was always it always reverts to the family that it belongs to. So when Naboth says to Ahab, hey, I can't sell you this land 
It's the inheritance and the heritage of my fathers. Notice what happens next in, in our passage of study in 1 Kings again, verse 4. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. So King Ahab is really bummed out that he can't have this vineyard. But then watch what happens next in verse 5. It tells us, His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So I just have to warn you, things are going to get pretty dark here. I just got to warn you. So what, what she says is basically, hey, king, you're a king. And that means something. You've got a lot of power. Let me show you how to use that power so that you can get what you want. So notice in verse 8 now. So she, Jezebel, wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters, she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people, but seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and the nobles who lived in Naboth city did as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast, seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him, brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. She said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, that he has refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Crazy story. But on one level, we're to recoil at the injustice that this is present, that is present in this story that we just read. Here's a king that he's been elevated to this position of power amongst God's people, that he can use this power to take care of the weak, to protect the vulnerable, and to pursue righteousness. But instead, what we see is that there's a king who is using his power and a wife who is queen, who is leveraging his power to bring about injustice, unrighteousness, and self-advancement. But not only that, but we see that with the breaking of the 10th commandment, what starts with Ahab just sucking his thumb on this bed, kind of pouting a little bit, really bummed that he can't have that vineyard, what starts with coveting also leads to the breaking of the ninth commandment, getting false witnesses to make a charge against this guy Naboth. And then the breaking of the sixth commandment, murdering Naboth. In other words, they go, let's figure out a way to plot his death so that we can have his stuff. So what do we learn from this story of coveting 
on the pages of Scripture. Here's what I think that we ought to see. When you covet, your world becomes very small. When you covet, your world becomes very small. Think about it. Ahab is the king of Israel. He is literally, he literally has the whole nation and its resources at his disposal. And yet he's all curled up in the fetal position because he really wants a vineyard. I mean, that is just, that's crazy. His vision has narrowed. The only thing in the world that matters to him is the vineyard next door that he can't have, despite the fact all that he does have. See, when you covet, your world becomes small. You no longer see all that you do have. You become fixated on what you don't have. So here's the question this text invites us to ask us ourselves this morning. What is the vineyard in your life? What is the vineyard in your life? What in your life has caused your vision to become narrowed and constrained so that's all you can see? What causes you to neglect all that you do have and focus on what you don't have? This story is in the Bible to provoke us to wrestle with the damage that coveting does. And it all starts with a king wanting something that he can't have and getting a really legitimate no. It starts out with a legitimate ask. Hey, can I buy this property from you? And then a legitimate no, sorry, I'd rather not sell it to you. So far, so good, right? But where it quickly goes is I'm agitated, I'm angry, I can't eat, I can't sleep. All I can think about is what I don't have. So if that's a story about coveting, let's gain a little broader survey of coveting now. Let's examine the landscape of the sin of coveting. Let's explore more fully its features and its contours together today. One of the best resources out there when you study the Tenth Commandment is Martin Luther's larger catechism. When he walks through each of the commandments and he has this great little summary of the essence of coveting, and he, here's what he says, Co coveting, when you really boil it down, it comes down to this, being unwilling to see your neighbor enjoy what God has granted them. Being unwilling to see your neighbor enjoy what God has granted them. That's the essence of coveting. It's not just that I want it. It's that I can't enjoy you having it. What has God granted my neighbor? Maybe God has granted my neighbor a beautiful wife or healthy kids, significant prosperity. Maybe God has granted my neighbor great career success, friendships that are deep and meaningful, or a body that's physically healthy and strong. Maybe God has granted my neighbor that kitchen remodel that I can't afford, or that house that I can't have, or the promotion that I think that I deserve. Whatever it is, the question is this, am I willing to see my neighbor enjoy what God has given them? I think this question is what makes coveting different from ambition. 
So let's parse out the difference a little bit because there's a kind of ambition that's good and that's God-honoring, right? If you're working, you want to kill it in your career. You want to crush it. You want to be the best at what you do. If you're a student, high school student, college student, you want to graduate at the top of your class, maybe you really want to excel in your studies. Even as we think about our longings as a church here in Rittman, we want to excel and we want to have ambition and to be good at what we do. To be a healthy church that thrives and makes much of Jesus in our neighborhood and in our community. We have ambitions to change the spiritual landscape of the community and the type of, that type of ambition is God-honoring. When there's an intrinsic drive within you to excel, to do, to actually be good at something, I think that's ambition. But when that inner drive keeps you from enjoying the successes of others, then that's coveting. So here's a question to help us discern where we're guilty of the sin of covetousness. What are the things that you can't celebrate with others? What are the things that you cannot celebrate with others? What are the things that you find yourself unable to say, hey man, great for you. That's awesome. I'm celebrating that with you. That's the deeper tentacles of the 10th commandment in our lives because there's this real surface level application of this commandment that goes, wow, that guy has a really nice car. I wish I had a nice car. But here's the difficult thing about coveting, honestly. It gets enmeshed deep down in places where there is real sadness or hardship or pain or lack in our lives. And then covetousness attaches itself to that. So it's bound up in places where there's real lament, real longing, and real sadness. And healthy emotions that honestly need to be expressed, but in them is mixed coveting. That's the work that this commandment invites us to do, is to ask, where are the places in our souls where we can't celebrate others? Where we can't say, I'm so glad that God has given you that. Or I'm so glad that God has granted you that. I'm so glad that that's your story. For me, here's the question that I've been wrestling with all week as a leader. Even as I think about the ambition that we have as a church, can I celebrate the successes of other churches? Can I look at other churches and go, awesome, that's great. That's good that the Lord is doing great things in other churches. Or do I look and do I go, oh, I wish that was happening at our church. Do I find myself unable to celebrate the progress of the kingdom of God? To love my neighbor as myself means that I celebrate what God has granted you, even if God has not granted that same thing to me. To love my neighbor as myself means I celebrate what God has granted you, even if God has not granted that same thing to me. So we've looked at the story of coveting. We've looked at a survey of coveting. And now I want to look at with you the solution to coveting. What can disempower the temptation to coveting in us? 
if we've seen what the problem is, if we've seen what this looks like in our hearts, then what's the solution? What's the answer? It's actually really simple. The solution to coveting is contentment. The solution to coveting is contentment. The opposite of coveting is the virtue of contentment. This is what the scriptures lay before us and say, if we are going to put to death the sin of covetousness, what do we have to bring to life? We have to bring to life the discipline, the habit, the virtue of contentment. Listen to this poem. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days, the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted. The beautiful snow, the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted. The warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted. The freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted. To be mature, sophisticated, I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted. The youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle age I wanted. The presence of mind without limitations. My life was over. I never got what I wanted. What a powerful representation of our discontentment. Our inability to enjoy being where we are to live in the season that God has put us in with joy and life and vibrancy. If we want to quit coveting, we've got to learn to be content. How can we learn that? Where can we get that? Where does that virtue come from? You won't be surprised to hear me say that contentment comes from a deep understanding of the gospel. You can never be content by telling yourself to be content. Have you ever tried that? <laughs> oh, you should be more content. Why am I coveting that guitar? I don't need that. That doesn't work very well, does it? You can't achieve contentment by telling yourself to be contentment. You can't just grit your teeth, knuckle down, try harder. Rather, contentment comes from the inside out. Contentment comes as another love displaces the disordered love in my soul. And the scriptures actually give us a picture and a vision for this in Philippians chapter 4. Sam read it earlier. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, starting in the middle of verse 11, where the Apostle Paul says this, For I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. Stop there. Let that sink in for a minute. Did you hear what he said? Notice that word. I have learned. Learned to be content. In other words, contentment isn't automatic. It's not just a switch that you flip. It's not just have some people lay hands on you and pray and boom, presto, magic. You're content. He says, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Then he goes on to describe that. Notice what he says in verse 12. 
I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned, there's that word again, the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And then he tells us in verse 13 what he has learned. Ready? I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now let's just be honest. There's hardly a Bible verse anywhere else that's been taken out of context more frequently than Philippians 4.13, right? I could do all things through him who strengthens me, right? On every sports locker room wall. Well, first and foremost, this verse comes in a passage within the context of contentment. What Paul is saying here is this. What's the secret of contentment? Where can I learn this virtue? What does it take for me to understand how to be content in whatever circumstances that I'm in? And the answer is, I could do all of this through Him who gives me strength. What's the secret of contentment? The secret of contentment is the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, because I'm in communion and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore, I'm content. Whether I've got a lot, whether I've got a little, whether my circumstances are great, whether they are terrible, I have learned to be content. And here's the secret that I've learned. It's not about my circumstances. Here's what we tend to do so often, even in our seeking of contentment, even as we're pursuing, how do I gain contentment? What we try to do is find contentment in our circumstances. But notice in verse 12, in any and every situation. I've learned the secret. In other words, true contentment will never come through a change in your circumstances. This is the biggest lie that we believe, right? We oftentimes think, well, if I had that thing, or if my life was different in that way, or if that longing or need was fulfilled, then I would be content. We tend to find contentment in our circumstances. The scriptures are saying, that doesn't work. You're never going to be content. Why? Because contentment is found in communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. Contentment is found in Him, not in my circumstances. Well, when I was younger, and uh, you guys have probably experienced this in the same way that I have, but when I was younger... Older people in my life, wiser people in my life, more experienced people in life would tell me things like this a lot. Hey, whatever you think it is that's going to bring fulfillment, once you get there, what you're going to find is that it doesn't satisfy you like you thought it would. And here was my response to that. Well, that's easy for you to say because you already have it. Like, of course you're telling me that it won't make me happy, but you already have it, so it's easy for you to say. When I was single, it was married people telling me, hey, marriage isn't going to fulfill you. And I was like, oh, that's easy for you to say because you're married, right? So thanks for telling me, the single person, that I should be content in my singleness. Easy for you to say. When I was an intern or resident in ministry, it was people who had achieved a lot of stuff, a lot of success, and that was full of youthful ambition. And people would say, hey, even if you achieve all the things that you 
think that you want to achieve, that's not going to satisfy you. And I was like, well, that's easy for you to say because you've already achieved a lot of things. So it's easy for you and your pinnacle of achievement to look down at me and say, hey, you should be content even though you haven't achieved that. Easy for you to say. But here's the thing. I'm 33 years old now. I'm a little bit older, a little bit more experienced. Not much, but a little bit more. And here's what I'm realizing. It's absolutely true. And the reason I share that is because you can't find true contentment in your circumstances. Because contentment is a state of the soul. It's a state of being that comes from a union with the Lord Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis in his autobiographical writings, he uses this phrase that I think is a wonderful phrase. He talks about the inconsolable longing. And he says, I went through life with this inconsolable longing that I just couldn't figure out how to satisfy. And it was that inconsolable longing that ultimately drove me to the Lord Jesus Christ, to Christian faith, to surrender in faith to Jesus because I saw that only in Him could that longing be fulfilled. That inconsolable longing, by the way, is present in each and every single one of us. Uh, Ecclesiastes tells us that God has set eternity in the heart of man. And it's what often drives the sin of coveting. That longing can only be met, it can only be filled, and it can only be satisfied in a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what it's meant to point us to. Well, in addition to Philippians 4, look at Hebrews chapter 13 with me. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. It says this, Keep your lives free from the love of money, which is very countercultural in America, and be content with what you have. So there's the exhortation, there's the encouragement, is basically saying, hey, instead of loving money, be content with what you have. But why? How? What causes that? Because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. What can keep me free from the love of money? What can make me content with what I have? The fact that Jesus is never going to leave me. The fact that God has promised that he will not forsake me. Verse 6, it says, So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? I will never leave you nor forsake you. What can make me free from the love of money? What can make me content with what I have? The fact that Jesus will never leave me. The fact that God has promised he will not forsake me. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? So what is the solution to coveting? What's the answer? The solution is contentment. And that contentment is only found in union and fellowship and in relationship with the Lord Jesus. So during the sermon series, I've said from time to time that the Ten Commandments are a communal ethic. In other words, this is casting for us a vision of what a people of God ought to look like. This is God's vision for a beautified and redeemed church. This is what God's people are to manifest. So we could say it this way. God's people, redeemed and transformed by Jesus Christ, are a non-covetous people, a content people, are a satisfied people, a people who have found lasting contentment in Jesus. But what exactly does that look like? Well, here's some of the representations here among us. Here's what that will look like in our life together. It will mean that there's deep and lasting joyfulness. 
It means that we can rejoice with those who rejoice. We found ourselves being able to celebrate other people's successes and say, man, that's awesome. I'm so happy for you. I'm so glad that you landed that new house. I'm so glad that you got that promotion. I'm so glad that God has graced you with that particular blessing in your life. Good for you. We can rejoice with those who rejoice. We can weep with those who weep. It also looks like freedom from the love of money, like Hebrews chapter 13 talks about, so that we can be radically generous and open-handed and not stingy and greedy, but instead generous. Why? Because we're free and we're content. It looks like love. I can really celebrate the joy of others. And I can love them by celebrating what God has given them to celebrate. It looks like simplicity. I'm content because my wants haven't morphed into needs. I can be simply satisfied with what I have. And as Paul says, whether I have little or whether I have much, I can learn to be satisfied and content in that. I'm happily living within my means. I'm happily enjoying what I have. I'm thanking God for what He has given other people without envy, without jealousy, without covetousness. That's the vision that God lays before us, what He wants His people to look like. That's the vision that He sent Jesus Christ into the world to make possible. That's the vision that He gives us His Holy Spirit in order to enable and empower us to do so. A life defined not by coveting, but by contentment. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You so much for the Ten Commandments. Uh, Lord, thank You so much that we see forgiveness and reconciliation, uh, love, and, and, and all these different gospel themes through sending Your Son to die for our sins on the cross, to raise from the grave, to conquer and defeat Satan and sin and death, and to give us new life through His death and resurrection. Lord, thank You that we can uh, be a people who can strive to live out this vision, uh, not by human striving, not by gritting our teeth and white-knuckling it and trying harder, but by the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. But Lord, we know that's not true of each and every one of us. Some of us might be here this morning or watching online and maybe we're investigating Christianity, but maybe we've never put a stake in the ground and come to Christ through faith and repentance. So I pray for the person today who is wrestling with the question of who is Jesus? What does that mean for my life? I pray for the person who has been trying to navigate life by operating with a secular worldview, that things just are so incredibly hard, even with Jesus in our lives, God. I can't imagine what it's like to have to navigate life without Christ. So I pray, pray for the person who, who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, Jesus. And Lord, I also pray for us as a church, God, that we would be encouraged and know that that these Ten Commandments are not lived out perfectly, but increasingly by the power of your Spirit. God, help us to lean into that. Help us to remind ourselves of that, even as we sing the words of this song. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about our church, please visit www.ritmangrace.org or email us at RitmanGBC at AOL.com.